Welcome to Adventure Rider Radio Raw, a roundtable-style spin-off from Adventure Rider Radio that we do each month about motorcycle travel. And on this episode of Raw, episode 71, pre-trip jitters and homesickness while traveling and a whole bunch more coming up. This episode is supported by Fresh Tracks, facilitating adventurous conversations like I hope we do here on Raw, freshtracks.co.uk. Now, before we get into today's show, I want to give a shout-out to some people that have helped the show incredibly this past month with support of $50 or more. Eric Wilkinson, Patrick Boyd, Mark Plank, Jason Hill, Jason McKellar, David Pariso, Scott Doby, Clement Abandondoli, Troy Farajan, Frederick Schwiller, Christian Campman, James Wooden, and John Sirabassi from Emmaus Moto Tours. Thank you all very much. Hey, the, the shows are built on a model of, of listener support and advertising, so drop by our website. Anything $50 or more gets you a shout-out on the show like you just heard me do. Anything $10 or more gets you a sticker, all at AdventureRiderRadio.com and click on support. Now, here we go for episode 71 for December 2021. The last one of the year for, the, for this year, last one for 2021. Here we go. Recorded live from the Canoe S Media Studio deep in the boreal forests of North America, this is Adventure Rider Radio Raw, roundtable discussions about motorcycles, travel, and anything else that crosses our mind, completely unscripted, raw, and personal. My name is Jim Martin, and today the virtual roundtable afforded through the magic of the internet. I am joined by my regular Overland co-hosts. I'm going to start with Sam Manicom. Now, now, Sam, have you actually been on your bike lately? <laughs> Hello, everybody. Um have you got spy cameras on the front of my house? <laughs> no, 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 no. This is just just a just a hunt. No, actually, I haven't. I haven't ridden my bike for over a week. Um, I have been so busy working on our new project. There has been literally no time to ride, which is um, quite miserable. My my boots are complaining. My bike's complaining. My my jacket's complaining. Um, and yeah, well, let's put it this way. Um, the weekend is almost upon us. I feel like you're rubbing my nose in it. I, I live in a place now where it snows, where there is no riding in the wintertime. And you're talking about a week? I have to go months. <laughs> oh, Jim, um, my heart breaks for you. Oh, Why do you think we that. live in a, in a, in a county um, such as Devon in the southwest of England? Um, people up north this last week or so, they've had inches and inches of snow they've had we've had some really intense storms um this last couple of weeks and um yeah lots of people have been battling with well upwards of a foot two foot of snow in in some places but down here it's just been a bit breezy now i just heard michelle chuckle in the background there michelle lampfair is in that black hills of south dakota and last time michelle you mentioned that you have a personal challenge that you do for yourself of getting on your bike each month all year so how's that working so far for you into this winter well, um, I haven't ridden in December yet. Let's Ooh. put it that way. <laughs> you don't we have long. Had, I know. And it's it's going to go out pretty quickly. I was actually thinking of going for a ride this morning, but didn't get it done. It's unseasonably warm today, but um, we had a foot of snow between Friday and Saturday. So it hasn't melted enough yet to get out and about. I was hoping it would melt quickly today, but I don't think it's going to happen. And then I think another snowstorm starts tomorrow. So winter has arrived. You said melted enough. What, what do you have, like a like a, a measurement that you go by four <laughs> inches is fine? No, in, enough that, you know, I can I can get around on the roads. The streets will clear. We'll have lots of snow, like on, you know, on lawns and hillsides and in the trees and things. But the, the streets and, and some of the roads up in the hills will clear out. They'll melt. Mm. 
your hotel, your motel, uh, is it a motel or hotel? Motel, isn't it? Motel. Motel. Mm-hmm. Your, your motel is closed for the winter. It is. Yeah, Why do you I do closed that? in the middle of October. Uh, because of all the snow. <laughs> I hate shoveling. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's not just that. It's actually um, where I live is a really seasonal part of the world as far as tourism. So it's a pretty slow um, tourist business this time of year, and it's just not really profitable. So um, I go ahead and close in October. My cabins are not really um, built for winter. They're not well insulated, etc. And that's nice because it gives me a little time off if I want to go ride. But unfortunately, if I want to do that, I don't do it in South Dakota, really. I have to go somewhere else, somewhere warmer. Mm, well, yeah, that, that, that's a definite advantage to that. You could head to South America again and spend your, yeah. your winter there. I see. Okay, that, yeah. ma- that makes perfect sense. Uh, Shirley uh, Hardy Ricks and Brian Ricks are in Australia and you guys are into spring now. And I was thinking about this. I know, Brian, you're going to buy this new bike that uh, that you went and sat on the other day. <laughs> but I'm curious, Shirley, do you do you ride on uh, on Brian's recreational rides, or, or do you only go on trips, or where he's actually heading out somewhere? Um, um, good morning. Um, it's a very tricky question for so early in the day, Jim. Uh, do you want me no, to come I back to that? To- <laughs> yeah, I tend to do trips and the odd recreational ride, but I do not do the round the driveway in lockdown rides. Mm. And I don't do the three bikes in a day just to give them all a run rides. Um, and uh, I was at BMW with him when he sat on the new GS1250. And I would like to thank all the raw listeners who gave us very sound advice on what to do with the tyre pliers if we get the new bike. Uh, it was very handy. Incl- I, my favourite was the person who suggested that perhaps it was time for Brian to take them and uh, that I should relinquish them to his custody. <laughs> Thanks, Cheryl. Jim, I'm sitting here looking at my summer jacket and my uh, adventure jacket waiting for me to put my arms through the sleeves and go for a ride in summertime down here while you guys freeze your proverbials off uh, in the north. And I'd like to know what unseasonably warm is for Michelle. Um, We've just had two days well over 30, so it's been a bit on the overhot side here. Mm, So I guess my spring comment is really kind of out to lunch. You're, You're full summer now. We, we actually change months at the first of the just, month rather than at the equinox like most countries. So we've been in summer for 15 days. Surely that doesn't make summer. That's only the official summer. You, you know, like su- summer doesn't, uh, winter doesn't arrive here, of course, until it gets cold and snowy. Oh, well, summer's here because it's hot and sunny. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Grant Johnson is also in in a bit of a mild climate in British Columbia, Canada. Grant, hello, and um, how are you riding right now? Hello, everybody. Um, Riding at the moment? Well, no. We recently, some people will have heard, had some massive flooding. Chilliwack, where I live, was actually completely cut off from the world. All the highways in were completely flooded, broken down, bridges down, Massive flooding, what used to be a lake and was drained and became a lake again. And it was an interesting time. But, you know, I could go, oh, I might have been able to get a couple of kilometers. And that was it. That's as far as you could go. So it wasn't much for riding. So for now, no, not doing any riding. Bummer. Once upon a time, I made a point of riding every day of the year and did that for a number of years. But the last couple of years, I've gotten a little soft. 
I'm not riding in the winter when it's cold and wet and snowy and icy. I notice when we talk, anytime you're talking about riding now, you're talking, I think it's a WR250 you have, right? No, DRZ400E. DRZ 400. Um, and that's the bike you're talking about though, is riding the dual sport bike, not so much the, the big BMW. Are you riding the BMW anymore? Yeah, occasionally. doesn't get a lot of use um, because most of the time I'm not going any distance. The BMW really is, to in our minds, is a two-up, go, go somewhere bike rather than just go for a day ride. Oh, I see. But the 400 is my, I'm going to go out and have some fun in the woods bike. Mm. So that's more fun. That makes it. Hey, but Brian, what, what do you do with all your bikes? How do you keep them? Like, are they all on the road or what do you do for insurance for that? Um, well, we have a good system, which is uh, club permit schemes for anything older than 25 years here. Um, and uh, most of my bikes, that's why I buy old orphans, actually, um, and do them up and, and ride them. My uh, trail bike is a uh, Yamaha XT600E. Ex-army bike, and that's great to plonk around on. But um, yeah, I, most of my bikes, other than two, are on club permits, which is something like eighty dollars, a little bit more a year to oh register. God. So, wow. so they're all registered. So that's why uh, I have bikes uh, that are twenty-five years or older. I thought you so bought bikes that were twenty-five years or older because that's the the amount of money you can spend without getting approval from Shirley. <laughs> <laughs> No, but what's funny is that Brian has enough bikes that he has his own club and he can insure himself as a club. That's pretty good. That's that's pretty close, Jim. And look, yesterday, my son up in um, Echuca sent me an email and said, Dad, have a look at this. And it's one I've been lusting for for a while. So guess what? This afternoon, I'm going to go for a little ride uh, of about 140Ks up to have a look at this um, CB350 uh, Honda Twin, um, which might need a little bit of TLC. And um, at, over lunch, the conversation was a little frosty, but um, I'm off anyway. And when he rang with his father last night, the first thing he says was, will Cheryl ever forgive me? <laughs> <laughs> Brian, I met a guy who was um, going around the world on one of those, and he absolutely loved it. Yeah, I always thought they were just boring. 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 Uh, uh, they made 660,000 of them, and yeah, um, yeah they, were, um, they were the bike that, uh, uni students could afford brand new, and so there was a lot of them around. But I've got to say, they were a great little bike. The 350 was quicker than the 450, and I can remember slipstreaming a mate of mine on his 750 Honda, and I was on my little 350 with ace bars, rear sets, uh, laying down on the tank, pulling it through 9,200 RPM, well over 100 mile an hour, which is not bad for a 350. So, yeah. I think I'll get it. You know, we're going to talk today about uh, pre-trip jitters and dealing with emotions during a trip. Brian, do you get that before you're going to buy a new bike? Do you get that that pre-trip jitter, that nervousness? <laughs> of maybe I'm doing the wrong thing. <laughs> uh, it sort of kicks in a bit early when we're having this discussion around the uh, dinner table, um, Jim. Um, but uh, once I'm on the bike and going to look at it, um, you know, this you get you get those tingling feelings and um, 
you sort of look over the bike and you think, yeah, okay, I'll get it, and I'll I'll deal with the um with the tsunami afterwards when I get it home. <laughs> so it's better to ask forgiveness than permission. Speak <laughs> forgiveness. Yes, exactly right. Are, are I think you, she's wisely up to. <laughs> she probably is. Right, what kind of a nego- negotiator are you? Do you go in and you you know sort of hit them hard with this is wrong, that's wrong, this is what it's worth, sort of thing? Ah, uh, no, I'm pretty fair. If 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 the bike's in reasonable condition and and it needs um this and that, I'll say so. But um, you know, if it's a reasonable price, that's okay. That's okay. I've actually got a few bits and pieces up in the shed that she doesn't know about that can fix this thing up anyway. So. She does now. <laughs> can I tell you, Jim, a couple of days ago we had to shift a whole lot of stuff in our shed oh. to make room for a tradesman who was putting um, an extension on the roof. And um, I discovered a virtually brand-new seat for a motorcycle. No, it's not brand-new. Um, Two sets of exhaust. No, no, no. And numerous no. other bits and pieces. And I kept saying, What's this for? What's this for? And there was no correct answer. There was no <laughs> speedy response to my queries. So I reckon he's secretly building yet another one up there. And at the moment, it's on shelving. Uh, I've, I've almost got enough for another 750 Honda if I keep going. <laughs> You know, I, I asked about um, earlier when we were talking about going to the BMW dealership of, you know, what it was like for you to go into the dealer. Were you excited? Because it made me think of a guy, we used to have a, our, our tourism business and we had a, a store where we sold stuff, all kinds of kayaking, canoeing and, and outdoor gear. And there was this one guy that came in named Roger that I got to know fairly well. And he, he's a really good guy, but he was very hyper and, and he had the excitability that Brian has for motorcycles. And when he first came in, I remember he bought stuff very quickly. He would ask about something. I I would point something out and he bought it regardless of the price. It didn't matter. Then I met his wife, (laughs) Rachel, and and they're both very, very nice. Rachel used to often come in with them afterwards. And I realized very quickly, I could sell Roger anything. I could sell him a kayak. I could sell him paddles. So I I had to restrain. (laughs) I had to restrain myself. So what what I'd end up doing is trying to talk him out of buying things. Uh, That's probably what your guy at the dealership does is probably has to talk you out well, of buying stuff. Well, I thought it was pretty clever, Jim, because uh, I said to Shell, I need a pair of summer weight gloves and we ended up in a BMW dealership sitting on motorbikes. I thought that was pretty good. <laughs> that's that's a good segue. <laughs> <laughs> pre-trip jitters and dealing with emotions during the trip. So, so we'll start with pre-trip jitters. That's planning. And I, I mean, I think most people can probably relate to this. For a number of years, Elizabeth and I would be traveling all summer. So we'd rent our, our house for the wintertime. And then there was a certain date where we had to be out because they literally rented this thing out by the day or by the week throughout the summertime. And come up to that time, a week before, I was okay. But as it got up to those those last couple of days, it was like a panic because we had to get things out. And there was always the rush. Is the, is the vehicle ready? And, and, and have we got everything in order? And, and all of that sort of stuff. That's the panic that we're talking about. Um, maybe we should get some stories, actually, uh, pre-trip uh, jitters to begin with. Sam, can I start with you? Uh, you know, I, I really love pre-trip jitters. And I think the day that I don't have them is the day that I need to stop traveling. I, it's just a, an anticipation thing for me. And and I think that pre-trip jitters are um, a way, the body's way of making the common sense 
kick in, come alive. And we all know that we're heading out into the unknown, aren't we? Away from that comfort zone um, of being somewhere where we know quite well. Um, and common sense is just accepting that we can't prepare for everything. And But it does get us in the mood to head out with our eyes open and our hearts open. And what a great combination. But I, I really like it. You know, just going through the whole thing, did I put everything that I should have on the checklist? And I wonder what unknowns they're going to be and when will be the first time that I make a fool of myself? And of course, you know, that happens quite often. Um, when will I make the first mistake and what will happen as a result? And all of these things go through my mind. But I kind of like it because it does feel like I'm waking up. And you know, I've said before that um, it takes me about six weeks to settle into a trip. And part of that is dealing with the pre-trip jitters because yeah, it's I've I've got to let my my body and my mind wake up properly to what's coming next and to get through that jittery stage. But I like it. I I love this sort of tense feeling, and I think it always comes back down in the end to to reminding myself that there are few di- um, disasters on a big trip, if any. But what matters is how you deal with the unexpected challenges, and that is adventure. And once I remind myself of those of those simple lines, then the pre-dipditters sort of settle down a little bit. But no, I, I like that tenseness. Shirley and Brian, I'm curious what it's like for you guys, because I'll bet it's different for both of you. Uh, I'm reasonably calm. <laughs> that is such... That's so not true. <laughs> you idiot. Yeah, I, um, I get anxious if we're going away for the weekend. I always worry about what we haven't packed. And as we walk out the door, my my last line is, oh, well, what I haven't got now, I'll buy when we get there. Um, Brian rolls his eyes. <laughs> <laughs> but planning for the big trips, um, by the end of, of, you know, organising visas and trying to ship a bike halfway across the world, just getting on the plane is such a relief. It's um, the jitters all disappear. Once we once we step out of the house and we're on the way to the airport, it's just let's just get out of here now. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm a little different. I'm a little different, Jim. I, I go in sort of a wave because you get those tingles when you think, yes, we could do this, we could do, we could do this trip. And I'll never forget the first one. I think I've related it before when we looked after Chris and Erin Rattay when they were travelling through, that that whetted my appetite for travel. So I had this um, desire to, to research and do everything that needed to be done. Then the prep surely took over the preparation of all the paperwork and all the rest of it. And I took on the, the shipping of the bike. And um, I got the jitters when I packed the bike and sent it off on the back in a crate uh, with some bloke with a forklift uh, wobbling it onto the back of a truck. That really worried me uh, until until you see the bike again, you know, and um, you go through this whole process. And she was right. When you get on the plane, it's all, uh, you know, usually full of excitement and all the rest of it. And when you get to where you, your destination is, waiting for the bike um, can be a little problematical. The first one, the bike was late arriving into Felixstowe off a ship. So I was like a caged animal ringing the um, shipping agent 
every day and driving her crazy. It got to the point um, where he wasn't allowed to ring the shipping agent anymore because it was verging <laughs> on stalking and I would have to ring her because Brian couldn't um, trust himself not to lose his temper because uh, the, the bike close. was so late. But, and that was we were on our way to the Isle of Man for the first time and we had ferries booked and anyone who's been to the Isle of Man knows you can't just ring up and say, look, could I just swap my booking for a day? Yeah. So that meant you know, when we got the bike, um, we had to unpack it and and, you know, I get all jittery about that and making sure everything's connected properly. And I'll, I'll never forget that first trip, Shirley. We had to ride from Felixstowe to Haitian, one side of England to the other, with no map in a foreign country. Um, and we got lost somewhere. Uh, well, we pulled into a B&B for the night and the woman thought we were quite weird when I actually asked her where we were. <laughs> that's a true story. And that's because but, you, you know, forgot your map? Probably. Uh, I, I was just in a hurry to get out of um, um, Felixstowe that, uh, ah, bugger it, let's just go, I need to ride, you know. It was probably in the boot of the car of the family members who took us to the freight yard to pick up the bike and all the stuff that didn't fit in the panniers just went in the boot of their car. And as we travelled for the next couple of months, we thought, where's that? Oh, I know, it's in Tina's car. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So please... Uh, a pre-trip jitters for me, as I said, is a bit of a wave from getting rid of the bike to seeing the bike again to getting on that first ride. But as Sam said, it's all part of the, the joy yeah. of travel, Yeah, that the apprehension and wondering what will be and knowing that, um, you know, you are likely to make a fool of yourself at some stage and but it's, that's all part of the adventure. And for Sam, it must be wondering which would be the first hospital he'll visit. <laughs> I wonder which one. I wonder what it'll be like. <laughs> you know, it's funny. We, I think we're all having trouble saying pre-trip jitters. And really the, de the definition, I can't even say the definition. The definition is just what, what Shirley was saying. It's it's sort of a combination of, of fear, apprehension, and excitement. Uh, those things melded together. Yeah. Along with that. Yeah, I, I don't think I ever suffered from fear, Jim. I think it was you know, just the apprehension of it all and the excitement of it all. Yeah, well, I mean, when you're when you're worrying about your bike and you're worrying about that's fear, right? That's what I'm talking about. Is you're worrying about your bike not being delivered in time to make your your ferry connection, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, everything else is going to sort of tumble like dominoes after that for you. So that's that's part of that fear. Yeah, maybe. I think it's. I think that's diminished as time has gone on. I think well, if it doesn't arrive, I'll I'll get another one. Buy a new one. Buy a new bike. Yeah, thanks, Michelle. I don't think when I was on the big trip and starting it and, and you're heading across Europe and it's February and it's cold and, and I've only been riding a bike for a couple of months and I, I don't think I was really afraid. Um, it was more a case of just coping. The, I suppose the one thing that I was afraid of was having to turn around and go home and own up to my mates in the pub that I'd given up. Um, yeah, I was afraid of that. No, but everything that was in front of me. No, I wasn't afraid of it. I was just, yeah, I was nervous. I was cautious. I was awake. I was aware. Um, and I had that full-on tingle sensation of anticipation. Love it. How about you, Michelle? Yeah, uh, yeah I, I feel a lot of those things. I think the months or weeks leading into a trip, especially a big trip, for me, really include a lot of excitement. And some of that is anxiety or anxiousness, just, you know, going over all of the details and the planning and the prep and the gear and all of that. Um, but uh, I think certainly for me, a component of it is fear. Um, 
And I think it's strangely, and I've finally figured out after years of this, that this is my norm. For me, the weeks and months leading into a trip, I'm more excited than worried. But for some reason, about that last week before I actually leave, before I you know, kick stands up and head out on the road on a bike or before I catch a flight to someplace, that last week, the balance shifts and it's more fear. And I spend, you know, three or four days second guessing things. Should I postpone the trip? Um, am I prepared? Is, is my gear right? Do I, you know, what am I forgetting? And I really kind of, the scales tip to that end of the spectrum. But I remember um, taking off, I think on one of my, I think it was my very first cross-country trip in the United States from South Dakota. I rode out to California to Joshua Tree National Park with a friend. And I was terrified that last few days before I left. But I decided I was going. I was committed. I was going to do it. So I got on the bike. We headed out. It was a pretty quick trip. We were only gone a little over a week, I think maybe 10 days. Um, for that kind of distance, we were riding in August when it was really hot, especially in Joshua Tree. It's it's kind of a famous part of the world for being so hot at that point uh, in the year. And I got home after the trip, which was an amazing trip, by the way. It was life-changing. Um, and I remember looking back on that fear that I'd had and thinking, wow. I mean, it was great because it helped me prep. It helped me be cautious. It helped me be uh, prepared. But it it was okay. I got through it. A lot of my worries didn't come to fruition. So I, I kind of learned to get over that. And now when I get to just before a trip, regardless if it's a motorcycle trip or any kind of a trip, that last few days before I go, when that kind of panic sets in, I just push through. And by the time I'm actually getting ready to, you know, climb onto the bike or hit the road, I'm, I'm all that fear has been useful. It's been productive, and that then is left at home behind me, and I'm ready to hit the road, and I'm excited, and all of that is gone, and it, it usually makes for an amazing experience afterward because I've overcome that fear to actually make that trip happen. So even after doing multiple trips, did you find that you're getting less pre-trip jitters? Nope. Same, same thing. <laughs> the same thing every time. And apparently it's my normal. I, and I just keep telling myself, but you remember that first trip when you were so nervous and how much fun you had, the incredible memories you made along the way. I mean, Joshua Tree was a place I had never been and we rode through the Rocky Mountains and, you know, did some amazing mountain passes in Colorado and rode through parts of Utah that I'd always wanted to see. And it was a life-changing trip. And I was so glad that I overcame that fear. And so I, I kind of use that as bait, I think, for myself for future trips. Okay, it's going to be great. Just have faith. Yeah. Grant, how, do you, how would you describe a pre-trip jitter? That's a really tough one. Um, I thought of this from the point of view of somebody new to this whole concept. People that I've seen come to the Horizons Unlimited events. And for most people, I think, first there's this, oh, this is an interesting idea. And then it progresses to, I'd like to do that, go on a big trip. And it becomes, I really want to do that. And then it progresses on to, I'm going to do that. And that's a big step. Then there's immediately after, oh my God, what have I said? What have I told my friends? Oh dear. <laughs> then it moves to, I really am doing it. I'm doing it. Then, oh my God, what have I committed to again? Uh, I think, it, and then it moves to all the packing and what decisions, what to take decisions, 
which goes on and on for months and stuff, your, your pile of stuff that you're taking shifts and moves around and it's all, do I need this? I, yeah, I need this. I, I got to have it. No, I don't need it. It's too much stuff. They keep telling me I'm taking too much stuff. So there's a lot of angst going on there with what to take and, and it will never all fit. And then it comes to, oh, we leave next week. Oh my God, we're not ready. I find it, there's so much to do. There's no time for, for jitters or nervousness. Just get it done, get it done, get it done. Let's get going. Let's get our things organized. And then for me, you're going and the jitters go away. It's almost, a, it's, well, it is not almost. It is a relief to actually hit the road, twist the throttle and start rolling. You wonder why you were so nervous to begin with, right? When you, when you actually start yeah, rolling. Yeah. This is okay. If I, it just popped into my mind. I remember when I was racing, there was always before the event, before the actual race, you know, you're, t- you're coming up in 20 minutes or something and you get all nervous. Mm-hmm. You quickly run off to the bathroom and you head out and you're nervous, you get to the line and the flag drops and you're not nervous anymore. Yeah. And yet, arguably, you should say that's when you should be nervous because you're you're going fast. But the jitters <laughs> go once you make that roll. I'm rolling. I'm going. One of the things that I think is the hardest thing about starting off on a trip is actually making the wheels roll for the first miles. And when you roll out of your own country and therefore into the unknown, um, yeah, once you once you've done that which I think is the hardest bit, then you're just rolling, aren't you? And you're just so busy with, wow, look at this. God, that's interesting. And, oh, I didn't know that. The jitters do disappear pretty quickly, don't they? Oh, yeah. I yeah. find there, there's so much going on. And it would depend on the person too, what, what you or the, or the people that are going what are you leaving behind? How are you doing it? Like if you have to move out of your house, for instance, if you've sold your house or you're, you're moving out of your rental or whatever the case is, that adds a whole nother um, bit of pressure to it. Same as if you're leaving family and friends or, or people leave pets at home, you know, and, and that's got to be hard, you know, not more than your family or friends, I guess, but it depends how you feel about your pets. But all that stuff has to be difficult and add to it. So I guess it depends on what you're doing, you know, to lead up to the trip. You know, I'll liken that to, it was was a thought that popped into my head a few years ago when I was on a big trip and I was having a conversation with a friend about that. And we were talking about my trip to South America and how hard it was to come home. And this friend was just getting ready to go on a round the world trip. And I said, you know, for some reason it popped into my head that it reminds me of Newton's laws of physics and laws of motion. And I know that's a very scientific, geeky comparison but there, what is the uh, the first law of, of Newton? Something along the lines, and forgive my paraphrasing, um, bodies at rest tend to stay at rest. Bodies in motion tend to stay in motion. And so that's how I felt about getting ready to go on the road. It's hard for me to get moving, but once I get moving, it's great. And then it's actually hard to stop. You just want to keep moving. <laughs> so oh, that's nice. Absolutely. Yeah. That's very nice. Well, that's Newton's law. It's, it's that they resist change in, in, in uh, direction or speed, right? So, right? That's right. That's true. Good analogy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Love it. Uh, uh, when you're talking about leaving people behind, um, my mother was convinced that she'd never see us again and um, that we would perish on the road somewhere. And um, there was a lot of tears around that. But I've got to tell you, we're very practical people. I, um, because of my work, I, I did a fair bit of work with a, um, a minister of religion um, 
with families of deceased and all the rest of it. And um, we decided to go and see Jim and have a chat to him about it, uh, about um, what would happen just in case we didn't make it back. And uh, when I've gone out to see Jim, Jim was convinced that we were going to renew our marriage vows. And I've handed him this document and saying, now, listen, Jim, if the worst happens, this is what we want you to do. And you should have seen the look in his face when we told him we'd had this all planned out, you know. (laughs) Don't bother bringing a body back, you know, do this, do that. And um, this is what we want done. (laughs) Absolutely brilliant. Love that you did that. That's so smart. Well, you know. Well, it takes the, the, the worry of our children off the, mm. the, the off the kids. That's exactly mm. right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You need to have and a the dog when you head and away. Cat. I love the children. It was hard leaving the dog and the cat <laughs> 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 because they don't understand that you're coming back. <laughs> Well, that, that's true. The, the pets actually will probably take it the worst, won't they? Because they don't really understand what's happened. I mean, you know, the dog will sit there and look at the door yeah. every day you're gone. I was reminded about uh, when Brian was saying about his mother thinking he'd never come back. Uh, Susan's mother was the same. She said, I don't ever expect to see you alive again with tears in her eyes as we left. <laughs> And the funny part was my mother was the opposite. My mother used to work in a travel agency and she'd been all over the place. She'd been to India and Singapore and all kinds of strange places, um, Africa, the whole work. And she said, have a great trip. See you when you get back. So it, it depends on what their experience is. Brian, what, what do you what do you think is the most stressful part of it? Is, is it documentation? Is it worrying about the bike? Is it worrying about what you're leaving behind? What do you find is the most stressful? I think the most stressful is um, getting the bike prepped and ready to go. I mean, everything else, Shirley made a, a, a quip that, you know, you can buy anything you want when you're moving. Well, that's true. You don't have to take that much. And I find when I pack to go away for a week now or whatever – I'm packing pretty much what we travelled for a year, you know, maybe a couple of extra T-shirts, that's all. So um, to me it's the bike that I worry about more than anything and uh, making sure that's right. And, um, you know, when you get on the bike, you've got to feel the extra weight. You mightn't have been on the bike for a while because of where we live. It's um, You've got to make sure everything is as it should be on the bike. And maybe that's why you fall off a bit, Sam. You've got, to, you've got to feel the weight. You've got to feel the movement of the bike and all that sort of stuff before you really get back into it. But I do that on the start of every ride anyway, I suppose. And I will take it well that he worries more about the bike than anything else. Just saying. <laughs> <laughs> but surely your job is logistics, isn't it? That's highly stressful too. And that can look. That can be stressful because you worry about, you know, going into Russia. Uh, how are we going to get these three, the three entry visas? And you know, but once you get get the hang of how to nail all these things, it, it doesn't take long to fall into place. Really, once you're on the road, as everyone says, it just it just happens. And if it doesn't happen, you work out another way of making it all work. So yeah. Um. The, and and the pre the pre jitters. I, I kind of think of them like an act. Actors always say that if they're not nervous when they go on stage, it's going to be a bad performance. And I think um, Sam said that before too. If, if you know, if you're not feeling anxious before you go or nervous up to a point, maybe you shouldn't be going. Maybe you're not looking forward to it. Maybe you're becoming too blasé. And certainly, being blasé about a motorcycle trip is something you shouldn't be. That's dangerous. Well, mm-hmm. Yep. Well, mm-hmm. Yep. 
Anyone else? When Michelle was talking, sorry. No, go ahead. When Michelle was talking about fear just now, Michelle, I absolutely get you. Um, I always think about fear as being um, respect, as in respect that you're going into a situation that you don't know um, and or situations that you don't know. And when, when you're respectful, that's when you have the opportunity to stay safe and to max the brilliance of, of every situation that you are about to head into. Um, as Shirley just said, if you go into situations blase, then yeah, well, what the hell? Why am I really bothering? Yeah, Sam, I'm sitting here. Yeah. You can't see it, but I'm nodding very heavily. I totally agree. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sam, what do you think is the, the most difficult part, though, of going on a trip that, that uh, in those pre-trip jitters? For me, um, yeah. am I good? Am I good enough to do this? Do I have the ability to do this? What do you mean? In um, what way? I self, I self doubt a lot. I always have done. Hey, but but um, what do you mean? In what way? Like how how could you? You mean dealing with, <laughs> dealing with the hospitals? I mean, like what what are you worried about? You actually worried about <laughs> you mortally or? Yeah, well, I like the food in this next hospital. You know, it's important in life. <laughs> um, no, I mean, things like, am I a good enough rider to deal with the conditions that are in front of me? Um, if the bike breaks down, will I be able to fix it some way or another? Um, will I offend somebody with their culture because I'm ignorant? Um, all of those sorts of things. And to me, they're all part of what goes into making a trip. It's, it's, it's learning. Um, and you learn who you are on a big trip in part because you make mistakes, but also in part because you're in the right right place at the right time with your eyes wide open. But um, yeah, I think, I mean, I tell myself self off for, um, for self-doubting, but I know that it's just me opening my mind and my heart to what's going to come next. And if I was arrogant, then I wouldn't self-doubt and I would not want to travel arrogant. Oh, yeah, spot on. Has anyone had it where you, you once you start the trip or at some point on the trip that something goes wrong and you sort of blame yourself? You know, you thought, well, I was worrying about this before I left and I, and I knew I, I should have, you know, you know, that sort of thing to sort of justify those pre-trip jitters? Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> What's that? <laughs> it piqued my interest I, immediately. <laughs> no, no, I just, it, it sounds like you're, you're prepping me and I know, I know we're not prepping for this, but I, I, in the back of my mind, I remember thinking before my big two-year trip, I, I remember, you know, my dad was really nervous. Same thing as a couple of other people have mentioned. My dad had tears in his eyes as we said goodbye. And I remember thinking, you know, what's the worst that can happen? I have a horrific motorcycle wreck, get injured in the middle of nowhere. And that's exactly what happened. <laughs> <laughs> and it wasn't that horrific. It wasn't. It wasn't that bad. But I. Oh, that's I'm, an understatement, Michelle. Have you suddenly <laughs> told me this? Well, yeah. I, okay. Well, details aside, <laughs> it turned out fine. I mean, I and not that I want to encourage anybody to go through that. Believe me, but. <laughs> I, I remember thinking, oh, I don't know if I have the skills for this. I had I had not done enough off-road riding. Um, and I am such a believer in in really, you know, doing the research, taking the classes, building your skills. But flat out, I just didn't have time. And as the calendar approached and I was getting ready to hit the road and I thought, oh, I'll just, I'll figure it out. I do what I can. And it it was not... Um, it was definitely a case where I was not as prepared with my writing skills as I as I should have been. Um, but that's not to say it couldn't have happened anyway. Um, 
because of some of the conditions. It was a windy day that played, you know, havoc in, in that particular scenario. But I have to say then, getting on the bike and moving forward, I was nervous for a long time. And even still, as I get back on the bike to do trips or, you know, when I was headed to Pakistan and flying in and I knew that I would be doing off-road, there's a very small component of my pre-trip jitters that includes me thinking about off-road riding. Even though I have tons of experience, I've taken some classes since then because I never want to be in that boat again. Um, it still is in the back of my mind that, you know, am I going to do this? Am I going to be okay? And it's, I think as Sam so eloquently said, it has to do with just having a healthy respect for it. And I think the reason that I take the classes and do the research and do the prep is because of what I call fear. Some other people might call, you know, pre-trip jitters or, you know, um, anxiousness or whatever, but it's definitely, it's something that motivates me to be more prepared. And that way you're, you're reducing the risk of, of a yeah. repeat. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, and the thing is you can, none of us are ever, I don't think, um, fully prepared for a big trip. And I, I bet we all know people and I bet listeners all know people who do everything that they can to prepare to do a big trip and they keep on preparing and keep on preparing and keep on preparing and never actually get to the stage where they're good enough in their own minds to actually head out and they don't head out. Um, And that's just really sad because, you know, there is, you're never ever going to be fully prepared for anything because that's the whole point of an adventure of doing a big trip, be it in our own countries in, in States or, or parts that we don't know. It's, it's the unknown. It's the parts that we aren't prepared for that are such a huge part of the big buzz. Yeah, that, that's life, isn't it? I mean, I, I think we've probably talked yes. about that before. That That is life. You know, often mm-hmm. you, you people will put things off and put things off and think, well, I'm going to wait for the right time. And most times there's not a perfect time. Not a perfect time. There may be, a, you know, the best time, but there's not a perfect time. You, you sort of have to jump in. And Michelle, you were mentioning about the um, sort of a nervousness, I would call it, of, um, you know, getting back on the bike. That's particularly difficult when you've had an injury like you did where it kept you off the bike for so long. You had that that extended period to sit and think about it while you heal yourself. Um, mm-hmm. And by the way, that that's, um, I'm going to give your, your book here a plug. What, what's the book called that this whole story is in? Uh, the butterfly route. The butterfly route, and um, and that's available. I mean, that'll be the link for the the show notes. But I mean, and that's a great read, and it talks all about you dealing with that and, and having that layup time where you have to go back. That's all. That's only got to magnify your pre trip jitters the next time. Yeah, it, yeah, and I think more so for me. And it, I mean, just the fear that I built up in my mind was so big getting back on the bike. And I think even before I left on the trip, I remember one of the places that I'd heard about that I was that was on the itinerary that I was headed to see at some point was the gravel roads in Ruta Corinth down in Patagonia. And it's famous for these horrendous winds, crosswinds. Crosswinds on a gravel road, then after my accident were my least favorite thing. And so, you know, it it was something that I just really dreaded for a long time. But it was it, it was something that I overcame and it was worth 
pushing through that fear. And I built it up to be such a monster in my mind. There's definitely a healthy respect that needs to be had, preparation that needs to take place, but it's manageable. It is, it is doable. And it obviously, I mean, hundreds of people have done it, if not thousands. Um, so it was something that was worth pushing through, you know, that nervousness and just doing the work and going out there. Um, and making that happen for myself because it was something that I wanted to do. That's not to say that, you know, it's for everyone. But with respect, I, you know, I, and at the risk of sounding like I'm quoting bumper stickers here, but I did see a sticker one day that it just really kind of sticks with me. Um, and it talks about, it just made the comment that uh, there are seven days in a week and none of those are someday. So... <laughs> mm-hmm. Instead of planning that you're going to do this on some day, and we all say that, I've, I've certainly done that too. You know, if it's something that you want to make happen, you know, find a way to maybe make it happen, even if it's on a smaller scale or with, you know, adjustments or, you know, what have you, assistance. But yeah, it, it was definitely worth it for me. How do you know the difference between pre-trip jitters and not having done your due diligence? for whatever it is you're, you're taking on. Do you guys have any sort of formula for that? Formula? Well, I don't well, think I mean, it's possible to have a formula for well, it. Well, well, something, you know, parameters where you would, where you would say, you know, like, I know I, I've done everything I can to prep, everything that, I, I, that is reasonable for me to do to prep. How do you know that you've done that? I don't think you, you do. Because I think what happens is that rather than that coming up, it's we're leaving tomorrow, ready or not. I've made the commitment, we're going, got to make the decision. Or you get into this situation like we were just talking about a minute ago, um, people that never go. I know one guy who decided he was going to head off on a big trip and he bought an R80GS just like mine. And he spent five years completely rebuilding it from the ground up so that it was perfect. It was beautiful. He had all his gear completely organized. And then he met a girl and that was the end of the trip. Hmm. You know, when, yeah. when would he, would he have been ready in that five-year period? He never was ready. So Well, he wasn't. You have to set a date. No, he wasn't. Yeah. I think the critical thing is that you set a date. I am going on this day, and whether you're ready or not, you go. And guess what? You're going to figure out what you didn't prepare for. Sooner or later, somewhere along the line, you'll figure it out. You can buy stuff. You can get things organized. You can organize visas on the way. It doesn't matter that you weren't completely, perfectly, 100% prepared to the nth degree. You're good enough that you can get on a plane or roll down the driveway and start rolling. Perfect isn't, isn't possible, and it never will be. And if you're waiting for perfect, you're well, never going to go. Well, you, you do it like um, project management. That's what it is. You know, you say, I am going to leave on this date. And then you set that date and you work out what has to be done. Or you can do what I do is um, come home from lunch and say, sure, right, okay, we're going and the bike's booked and we're off. Now let's <laughs> get our asses in the gear and, and sort it. Do it. Just do it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You have to make that commitment. I actually don't recommend that to people. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Consultation is always a a good thing to have when uh, when planning a trip. Just uh, just thought I'd throw that in there. That that makes a lot of sense. (laughs) 
But but the thing is though, if you don't do like like for instance, even with Michelle's example, and she said that that possibly part of that uh, not having her her off road skills up to par or gravel riding skills up to par may have attributed may have attributed to that. But but let's say you were heading to a place where there where you needed some reasonable skills and you haven't acquired those before you left. Wouldn't that be leaving before you really should? Yeah, but you're leaving tomorrow. That's the date that's set. Now what do you do? So you just go? I mean, like I, I know this one guy, he buys a bike without having any riding experience and he rides off and heads off to Africa and has, you know, all kinds of adventures from it <laughs> without really being prepared. Sam, do you, have you heard that story? Yeah, he's a complete plonker. Yeah, I, yeah, I thought you, you've heard that one. <laughs> in, in my defense, when I decided that I was going to do this, as part of my research within the first couple of weeks, I realized that the clock was ticking on me. Um, if I didn't get my skates on and make this happen as quickly as possible, then I was going to be trying to cross the Sahara exactly the wrong um, period of the year. And that period of year is basically five months long when it's just so toasty. So did I want to hang around doing a job that I was no longer enjoying and having realized that actually I didn't have any responsibilities and therefore I really should take advantage of this situation because I may never be that free again or that fit enough. Um, or did I hang around for another six months and you know do a bit more preparation and then go and hope that nothing went wrong while I was doing that? And of course, I was younger and more stupid, so I went and did it anyway. <laughs> But you're still alive. You're yeah. still here and you made it and you had some wonderful adventures and good memories. Absolutely. And that's part of the game. Yeah, but he visited Absolutely. every hospital around the world. Yeah, well, <laughs> come on. <laughs> yes, he did. Not English, <laughs> but going back to what Jim said, you know, I, I, I think um, if you if you feel you're underprepared, slow down. Yep. And I just 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 um, take it one little step at a time and realize your capabilities or lack of capabilities and ride accordingly. Mm, yeah, so that's you good have advice. to plan yeah, that up front. Key. You need to plan that up front and figure out, okay, I need these skills and I need this amount of time to get these skills in hand. I mean, one of the things we did was take a first aid course. Um, we thought that was a critical thing and we were right, it was. Um, but if you need rider skills, rider training skills, yeah, you need to plan those, and then you set your date so right. that it's reasonable. You can't just say, I'm yeah, leaving next some, week. Uh, so, but sometimes, Grant, if you do that, you can end up five years down the track and something else gets in the way. I think, you know, you, you know my, my thoughts are you, you set the date and you go with it, and um, you should have reasonable skills anyway. And um, if you haven't, you just take your time and, and, and find a way through it. You really do. Depends on where you want to go. I think if you want to do a lot of off-road, like Michelle was talking about, and you don't have any skills off-road, then you'd better get them. Uh, I mean, some of us have lots of previous experience where it doesn't really matter where we go. But if you don't have the skills and you don't have time to get them for off-road, then you better plan on a whole lot of pavement. And and that's okay. I mean, there's people going around the world on uh, six-cylinder Goldwings. And I remember one guy was a Goldwing. He said, was it? When asked about uh, riding on the dirt, he said, dirt. Yeah, I've got a rag to wipe that off the bike, <laughs> shine it up. It doesn't do dirt. And you can have a wonderful, amazing trip, 100% on pavement. I mean, many of the roads that we did that were dirt and gravel and horrible conditions and corrugations and all kinds of things, they're all paved now. Mm -hmm. So you just plan yeah, your yeah, trip. That's true. 
according to the bike. Mm-hmm. Unless you're crazy like Jacques. Just, 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 yeah. But, you know, I, hats off to the, the guy on the Goldwing Ice or going up to Prudhoe Bay uh, through the dirt and the mud and the slush. The um, Brazilian boy, he made it, no worries. So mm-hmm. they can do it. And <laughs> what um, Michelle was talking about, Route 40 in um, in South America, mm-hmm. when we were there a long time ago, they were talking about paving it, and I bet a lot of it's paved right, yeah, now. Yeah. But it would still be one of the great motorcycle rides in the world, even if it is paved, because you do have the trauma of the wind. They can't do anything about that. But the scenery that you're going to see and the people that you're going to meet, yeah, just because it's not just because it's not dirt doesn't make it any less uh, exciting or adventurous. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, when I was heading up into Thailand, I had so many people say to me, "Ah, oh, well, you know, if you'd been in Thailand t- twelve years ago, um, you'd have seen it, and it was much nicer then." And I was thinking to them, "Yeah, but I wasn't. So I'm going to go up and enjoy yeah. it the way <laughs> yeah. I find yeah. it." Yeah. 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 Exactly. Exactly. There's a lot of parts of the world that are easy and in our case, there are places that are now possible. Um, Mozambique, we didn't get to go through Mozambique, well, except through the Tet Corridor, because there was a civil war going on. Angola, same thing. We couldn't do them. Um, we couldn't do Ethiopia because of the conditions at the time. Now you can. Things change sometimes for the worse, but often now it's possible as opposed to impossible. So take advantage of what there is. See the world as it is today. And it's a wonderful thing. He has to enjoy what there is. So, uh, sort of to, to sum this up, um, Brian said project management, which I, which I think is is really good. So you, you you deal with it like you would, you know, project management style. You figure out what you need to do because Brian, you said if you if you need off road skills, you go out and you you train. You get your training. So you, if you do that and you do it properly, you'll be prepared. But if you're not, Grant, you said you can adjust your route. That's, that's another great suggestion. So if, if, if you are planning something that is beyond the skills that you've acquired, be it riding and, or whatever, you can still adjust your route when you leave, providing you've, you've you know, sort of built that into your trip. But stick to the date then. Everybody agrees on that? That's, um, that's yeah. really important. Yeah. Oh, I yeah. Yep. yeah. You can't delay. It's embarrassing to delay. You told all your friends you're leaving on this date for this wonderful trip. And now you're delaying it? That's, but the real problem is, is yeah. what you're doing to yourself, isn't it? Because really what you're yeah. going to do, you're, you're going to do yourself out of an experience because, let's face it, you're, you're afraid to go. I mean, you know, you've let yourself overcome with emotion, get overcome with emotion uh, about anticipating things that may never happen. Yep. Set a date. Do it. Yep. Jim, you just slipped in a sentence there that is so true. So many things that we are concerned about and worried about before we head off on, on a big trip may never happen. The fact that we thought about them means that we are prepared or semi-prepared for them, but our eyes are open to the situation. But half the time, the things that we're most afraid of, most worried about, they never do happen. If I go back through my life, and I've done this before, try to think of what are all the things that I've thought about that, I, you know, if something big goes wrong, this is going to happen and that's going to happen. I don't think anything has ever happened the way I imagined it could have to the, the negative side of it. So, so all that worry, I've always said worry is a wasted emotion. It's an absolute waste of emotion or waste of time, rather. It does nothing for you other than make you feel terrible. All that worry was just a waste of time because it never came to fruition. I didn't have to worry. Being cautious and respectful, absolutely. I don't think that anyone should go on with blinders. You can worry yourself 
you know, in, into missing out on life. I saw a quote the other day that really cracked this for me. And the quote said something like, worry is misuse of imagination. Mm-hmm. Oh, I, I like, like that. that. No, nice, isn't it? Yeah, that's good. That's good. That's a good bumper sticker. Michelle, you got to get that. We all need to keep in mind, we all um, magnify the fears and dangers of things we don't know. And we all underestimate the dangers of things we do know, like driving to work in your car. Well, yeah, okay, that's dangerous. Guess what? But you do it every day anyway. And then you head off to a big trip around the world and your fear is you're going to get mugged or whatever. You overestimate the risk of that. Well, just keep that in mind. Is that about, we, we don't balance very well on our fears. Yeah, that's true. That's very true, Grant. Um, just just think of this. Uh, most uh, accidents, of motor vehicle accidents, happen within a certain radius of your home. Yeah, small radius. Very small radius. Mm-hmm. I can't quite remember the, the stats now, but that's so true. And Grant, you talked about getting mugged. When we did our first trip, everyone said, oh, you're going to be robbed. You just know you're going to be robbed, so be really careful with all your valuables. Yeah. And I'd just like to say we were robbed. In the Broken Hill Caravan Park, 400 kilometres from home, we travelled through the Middle East, we travelled through Asia, um, through the old Yugoslavia, through Europe, through England. No, not a problem anywhere but that close to home. So, you know, how can I put this nicely? Shit happens but it can happen at home and it can happen overseas. So really if you get too stressed about it and – yeah, what you're doing overseas is what you do at home, but just in a different environment. But, we do, right, but there was another, when we were going to go through Albania. Oh, um, yes. We got a guy who was an Albanian. And, uh, there was troubles there all the time. There's only one road through there in those days. And uh, he said, I'm Albanian and I wouldn't travel through there because you will get robbed. So, <laughs> so, so you did. take that advice. So <laughs> we went around through Kosovo instead, which is, you know, that's – that's thinking about what you're doing on the road and taking advice. And that, uh, most people said that. So not that you jump at shadows, but, Taking you know. advice from locals is also a good thing. Yeah. If they mm-hmm. tell you the road's bad, chances are the road's really bad. So, you know, keep that Just in mind. Just don't listen to them about – sorry. Don't listen to them about what? Um, what they say about the next village because they're normally going oh, to yeah, yeah, suck. <laughs> <laughs> yes. yes. They're all thieves in that other village. Yeah, we've heard that one. Yeah, Yeah, be careful on the comment about, oh, the road's bad or whatever. Often we found that they would look at the motorcycle and say, motorcycle, you can get through there easy. So we go and we discovered that, yeah, if you're on a a local 90cc step through or something, yes, it's easy. But on a big loaded adventure bike, not so much. I know. I've I've run into that before too. On our way to the Chinese in Sost. Everyone said, you can get through, the trucks are getting through. Well, well, no, maybe not. <laughs> Two feet of snow, no. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Anyone else, anything with uh, with that? Well, okay, let's take a... Let's take a quick break here and thank uh, Fresh Tracks. Fresh Tracks is um, our sponsor for this episode. Fresh Tracks has been around since the 90s and they work with companies to or groups to inspire, motivate, challenge, build communication skills through team building exercises. And they work with a, a lot of big companies already like Mars and Pfizer and Yahoo, Comic Relief. So if you have a company and um, you're looking to work with your employees, 
Look at what Fresh Tracks has got to offer there. Freshtracks.co.uk is the website. Freshtracks.co.uk. Thank you, Fresh Tracks, for that. Um, now we're going to talk about dealing with emotions on the trip, sort of running off of what we talked about. We talked about the pre-trip jitters and, and worrying about uh, before you go and then finding that um, everyone's reporting that once we start out on the trip, things seem to feel much better. But there are points where you end up missing home, you know, typical homesickness, um, family, friends, maybe your pets. There's all these things that we we deal with on the trip. So, Shirley, I, I want to start with you. Can you talk about that? Because I know you you have sort of different feelings when you're on a trip than Brian does. Different times, I, I know you deal with probably with homesickness more. So can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Um, yeah, I tend to wear my heart on my sleeve and I do, I do suffer badly from homesickness when we're away. And um, to me, it's actually a physical pain sometimes. I, I just this yearning for... Um, not so much the surroundings, but the, but the the people. Um, I miss people, our normal people, our friend, our friends from home a lot when we're away. Um, sometimes a call home will help. Sometimes it has the complete opposite. Uh, when we were in Turkey, we ran a girlfriend of mine because we were normally at the motorcycle races with her. And when I got off the phone, I burst into tears. And Brian went, "Well, that was successful. <laughs> well, <laughs> we must do that again sometime." Um, but I don't think there's anything wrong with feeling that homesickness. You've just got to work your way through it. Uh, tomorrow things may seem a bit brighter and you won't feel so uh, missing missing the norm and other things will happen and will take um, overtake that place. Um, special times of the year are always hard, you know, kids' birthdays, uh, anniversaries, you know, special holidays. Um it's just something you've got to work through and certainly I know um, Brian tries very hard to be sympathetic with me when I really um, start grizzling about feeling homesick but um, when given the option to go home and then come back on the trip, I wouldn't ever take that. Because once you give up, you're probably not coming back. Well, that's that's how I felt. When we were talking to Chris and Erin Rattay, they were waiting for their bikes to arrive in South America and they were going to be two weeks, so they flew home. And I said to Brian, I, I don't know that I could have done that. Mm-hmm. You know, if I'd come home, I might have just stayed. And I think you need to work through these things. It's like the the fear of the, the gravel road, the fear of the unknown. Missing home, in some ways it's a good thing. It means you love home and it means when you get home you will adapt to life after the trip much easier because you'll be happy back in your own environment having experienced some of the most wonderful things that you'll ever experience in a lifetime. Brian, um, for you, it's different. Can you talk about that? Um, I do miss the kids. I do miss um, family and things like that, um, but not as anywhere near as much as what Shirley does. I think that um, uh, you know, at Christmas time and things like that, I, I found very difficult to be so far away from the kids and, you know, we'd have very lengthy phone calls and, and things like that. But I, I find that I'm, I'm quite at home just on the bike with my wife and, you know, that's you don't suffer from that loneliness that some do um, when they're travelling solo, I suppose. And in that way, I'm very, very lucky. So I think that tempers that homesickness uh, for me. Um, but... Um, yeah, I, and Cheryl's right. I, I am quite 
I do feel for her when she she gets this homesickness feeling, and um, we try to um, modify that as much as we can um, by making a phone call, having a chat about it, um, talking about what a great uh, adventure we're having, uh, what wonderful sights we're seeing, and as Cheryl said, the next day there's a new dawn and things change. And um, but um, having said that, um, on our first trip, my, my dad wasn't in good health and um, we'd set the date, everything was going well and we made sure that as we came across the world, I could get to an airport and get home if I had to, um, to see dad. And on our trip across Russia, it was coming up to mum's 80th birthday and rather than getting the ferry and going across to Japan to see a little bit of Japan, we left from Vladivostok and came home to be there for mum's 80th birthday. So, you know, those things do sometimes take precedence in your mind and um, you deal with them as they come along. And sometimes, Jim, those phone calls home don't pan out as you as you uh, intended them. We did a Skype call to eldest son and he said to his eldest daughter, come and say hello to grandpa. And she turned around and said, I'm too busy. <laughs> and that's teenager reality. She was she wasn't a teenager. Um, thank goodness she's a teenager now. And let me tell you, teenage girls. Well, that's another story altogether. Um, but one thing you must always remember that the people at home may not possibly be missing you quite as much as you're missing them. <laughs> well, it's different, isn't it? When you've got your surroundings around you that you're used to every day, your daily surroundings, if you're at home and someone else is traveling, it's, it's a little bit different than you who are completely oh, discombobulated. You're, you're completely removed from everything that you know. Yeah. 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 That's true. Michelle, do you get homesick? I definitely do. Um, it, and I think... I step back from whatever I'm feeling there. It kind of comes in waves. So I'll go for maybe weeks even and be so engrossed in the trip and having a great time, maybe even neglecting staying connected the way that I should. But then suddenly we'll hit a lull and maybe that's an anniversary or a birthday or a holiday or something coming up. And then I realize I'm so far from home and that um, you know, I'm not going to be able to connect with people or be with them for whatever that special day is. But oftentimes I actually find that I get lonelier when I'm more tired. So I kind of have to step back and, and try and evaluate the emotion and, and look at it from the outside perspective instead of just being overwhelmed by it. So whatever I'm feeling, if it's, if it's homesickness, if it's frustration, if it's, you know, anything like that, usually it's magnified when I'm feeling tired. So I kind of try to take a look and see if I'm, you know, due for a couple of days off. Um, am I due maybe to check in and stay connected? Do I make a call home or, you know, find some internet time or, you know, make a, a round of email messages and send them out to my loved ones just to stay in touch. So um, try and find ways to kind of, you know, avoid it. But when it hits, then I you know, I deal with it, understand it and try and stay connected. And then usually it passes again. Yeah. I, I wondered about the waves thing too, because, and, and I think it's a personality, probably a personality dependent thing, depending on, on, on you, you know, everyone's different, but, but it, um, I'm wondering about it coming in waves, you know, the things it can set off. And that's a really good point. Tired. I mean, that's when you feel, start to feel vulnerable. You start to get mm -hmm. more concerned about things. Um, that, that makes perfect sense what you're saying. Grant, 
How about you, homesickness? Not that much. Um, I think we didn't really struggle with that very much. Uh, as a couple, we didn't struggle with that in the way someone like Michelle riding alone might, I think. Um, and when we did most of our traveling, the only communication we had was by occasional phone, which were rarely available. And if they were, it was really expensive. So we weren't expecting to be able to communicate with home very much. I mean, we did and we had email. Even back in 87, we had email, but it was rare and it was really difficult. Uh, I could go into long stories about that, but just connecting was really tough then. Um, but we, we just became a two-person team. We were comfortable with each other and we didn't really need anyone else because we knew that we couldn't have it. So it was just us. And we made a point of connecting with everybody. We talked with as many people as we could as we went along. And that became our life. Um, like when somebody said, well, where, where's home? And we'd look at the bike. The bike was home. And wherever it was, was home. And that became the norm. So missing people at home, well, yeah, but we'd see them when we got home. So it, it was a different kind of thing. It's interesting to hear that the couples now we're starting to hear the pattern here, right? With couples, you have uh, probably have less chance of, of feeling um, well isolated, and for the for the obvious reason, Sam, for you, how does it work out? This might sound awfully callous, but I don't miss my family when I'm on the road. Wow, you are one callous person. I can't believe that. <laughs> and you don't have a cat, that. so you don't miss your cat. <laughs> well, I don't have a cat. I don't have a dog. But I do have a family, and they're a great bunch. But everybody's traveled at one time or another, always planning to do so. And I guess for me, it's it's always just the awareness that if something goes wrong big time for them, then I'll go home. We're not in the days of tall ships anymore, so getting about is, you know, it is just that much more straightforward, you know, obviously taking COVID into account. Um, and it's so much easier to stay in touch now, but I actually tell mine not to expect much from me, an occasional line, you know, emails or social media or whatever, but um, just not. Um, and they're absolutely fine with that. My mother's attitude is very much that, you know, if she doesn't hear from me for a couple of months, then well, there's probably something a bit iffy going on, but she's got an amazing sixth sense anyway. She normally knows what I'm up to, which can be a bit worrying. But um, lonely, I almost never am. I'm actually quite a shy person, and I know that sounds like an odd thing to, to say. And icebreaking can be quite hard for me, but it does require a what-the-hell attitude um, to deal with it. And there are usually people around um, and quite often I'm so busy planning and doing that I don't have time to be lonely. It is downtime, like um, Michelle was talking about, that perhaps I'm more likely to be. But I find that if I am feeling a little bit lonesome, then I head in the direction of kindred spirits and I'll go and I'll, I'll hunt out a backpackers hostel to stay in or head for a, a vehicle crossroads like the Jungle dun Junction in Nairobi or campsites instead of wild camping, or I'll just go to a local bar. And even if I don't talk to anybody, it's just sitting surrounded by the chatter and the banter and everything else. Um, but one of the things that I find that really helps with, you know, any element of that is find a job. Even if it's volunteering um, at something, wherever I am for a week or two, then just being surrounded by people that I'm seeing every day and that I'm getting to know a little bit, that really helps um, stop that. And I suppose it's one of the reasons why 
I never have really felt lonely, whether I'm traveling on my own or not. But of course, you know, traveling with somebody else, as in Birgit, um, that makes uh, a massive difference because we are a unit and we are good friends. And I, I, for me, I, I like traveling on my own just as much as I like traveling with Birgit because there are all sorts of different experiences that happen when you are on your own and you are encouraged to go and put yourself in situations where you can meet people. And one of the thoughts that I often have in my mind is that the road allows you or even encourages you to reinvent yourself. And if you're lonely, then start thinking about reinventing yourself as somebody who is a bit more happy to make conversations start. And that sounds awfully flip, and I know it does, but I've tried it and it works. Um, okay, today I'm going to go and talk to people. If anybody looks interesting, I'm going to go and start a conversation with them. What can I start a conversation with? Well, I'm English, so it's often the weather. But, you know, just <laughs> just all sorts of mad things. So, and I'll just go and say, and if I get rebuffed, well, so what? Um, I haven't lost anything. If I make an idiot of myself, well, that's okay. I'm transient. I'm moving on. So um, that person will probably never remember me, remember me or I'll just be um, a tail down the bar for them that night. But that's fine. Um, I quite enjoy being on my own just as much as I enjoy being with Birgit. So, yeah, that started off with I don't miss my family. They're a great bunch. But, um, yeah, they're, they're, that's cool. So you're, you're feeling down because you're alone. And then you've got to push yourself to go and sort of start conversations with strangers. That, that must be quite hard. It is. But because I've tried it and I know it works, then it's easier every time I do it. Mm. Um, it's, it's like riding dirt roads, isn't it? Um, they're hard when you first start doing them. So the more you do them, the easier it becomes. And even though it might go against your natural instinct when you do it and it works, then yeah, great. And sometimes you do fall off. So you pick yourself up and you get back on and you have another go. And it just works. But maybe that's just for my personality. Well, unlike riding gravel roads and getting used to them, like when you ride gravel roads and you get used to the gravel, you you tend to feel more skilled as a, as a rider. But often when we're when we're talking about this sort of thing, you won't recognize the reality of it. And what I'm talking about here is you saying that you've tried it and you know it works. That's a really important thing to do is to recognize the fact that, hey, I already know this works. I just know it's difficult to get over and, and I've got to push myself to do it. You, you know what I mean? Because it's mm -hmm. so easy to... To not recognize that, even though, well, yeah, I know it works, but it's really, really difficult. That, that's an important step. It really is. And it's also things like understanding the value of a smile. Sometimes connecting with people starts with that smile. And even though you're not feeling like smiling at all, so long as you don't um, develop the grinning idiot syndrome, then the smile can quite often start just a natural conversation with a stranger just because you give them a grin and you're in a situation where both of you aren't moving that quickly. But even when you're lonely and you're walking down the street and somebody's walking towards you and you give them a big grin and you get one back, instantly that loneliness is eroded. And I think something Michelle said resonated, rest. Sometimes, you know, a good night's sleep and the whole world seems like a better place in the morning. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I think that's so true. That is so true, yeah. Uh, anyone else, some um, things that we can do 
you're starting to, to feel lonely, emotional on the trip, um, Sam, you mentioned getting a job, which I, I thought was great because mm-hmm. I was thinking making friends that, that always, you know, just what you're talking about going in and meeting people, but getting a job is great because you see the same people and you, you develop natural um, relationships with people. So that, that's a great one. Linking up and traveling with other, with somebody else for a little while also, that can help. And sometimes that just happens really spontaneously, doesn't it? You're, you're staying on a camping site or in a yeah. backpacker's hostel mm-hmm. or something like that. And you meet a kindred spirit and you're both roughly going in the same direction. And so often it's just a case of, oh, do you fancy riding together for a few days? Yeah, okay. And off you go. Yeah, that's a great place to meet people. I mean, I've I've done that where I've ridden solo and then connected with other riders or gone and spent time consciously. So if I've been wild camping or camping even at a campground where I'm not socializing very much, if I feel the need to be around people, I can go, you know, consciously choose to go to places where I'm going to have more opportunity for that. But I I have to say from the outset, when you're traveling alone on a motorcycle and maybe it's particularly as a woman, I find that I really don't get lonely because so many people approach me just to say hello and hey, wow, where are you headed and where are you coming from and um, just you know, kind of asking about the trip or what I'm up to. So, it, and I know we've said this many, many times that motorcycles in general can be such a conversation starter. So I don't really find that I get a lot of opportunity to feel lonely. And, and granted, those are just moments of human contact and they're not really in depth. They're not friendships or anything like that. But, um, you know, as Sam suggested, maybe volunteering or if you, you know, go to a a traveler's oasis of sorts um, where you're going to meet other travelers, you have an opportunity to have some more in-depth conversations and spend a little more time together. So, you know, I, I, for me, I've traveled with people and felt lonely while traveling with people if they're the wrong people. So I I don't want to, you know, say that that can't happen. Um, And I've also traveled solo and not gotten lonely at all. So there can be such a wide range of, you know, this, this feeling very complete and happy and whole, but also, you know, having moments of loneliness. And and those to me aren't bad things. That just means that I have some, some good loved ones and family and friends at home that I'm missing. So it makes me mindful and appreciative of those relationships and it reminds me to stay connected. But yeah, I, I'm also a traveler who lives in the moment and, and I really don't have that many waves of that. And when I, when I do, I just take them as part of that whole experience and part of that journey. It's interesting that we get homesick for home. We're traveling yet. When you get back home, you develop this wanderlust to get back out on the road again. So, so it, it's important to remember that while you're out there, that when you, if you do start to feel down, that you may never get back here again. So yeah. focus on enjoying what your experience right then. And that may help you as well. Sure. Mm-hmm. Another thing I wanted to point out was there's now 840 Horizons Unlimited Travelers communities in cities around the world. If you're lonely somewhere, check out the communities page and there's bound to be somebody near you that is a traveler, is interested in hosting travelers and wants to meet you. There's instant new lifelong friends. Check it out. Website? Horizonsunlimited.com slash communities. Anyone else, any, any suggestions for, for dealing with uh, emotions on the trip? I think we've covered it all. Let me ask you this then. What's the worst things that you can do if you're, you're feeling lonely, emotional on the trip? 
Oh. What are the mistakes? Get angry. Get angry? Drink. Get angry. <laughs> get angry. <laughs> Getting angry. That's a bad one. Yeah. <laughs> Been there. Done that. Make mistakes when you get angry and uh, drinking. Yeah, I like that, Michelle. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> I don't know, Michelle. A couple of wines and everything can seem a lot better. Well, I guess as, as long as you, you moderate it, right? You know, you, you get to right. the feeling good stage, but not to the falling down drunk stage where you're swearing and, right. you know, picking a <laughs> or fight with somebody. into a puddle of tears or something. Yeah, yeah. No, you don't want that. <laughs> <laughs> and Michelle, the question they always ask is how many tears in a bottle of gin? Oh, I've not heard that before. Have you not heard that, I? Oh, I'll have to sing you the song. <laughs> there is a brand of whiskey that you can get over here, and it's called Writer's Tears. Oh, oh nice. nice. Yeah, I love that. Kind of gross, really, if you think about it. <laughs> it's, it feels salty on my tongue over just thinking about it. <laughs> hey, one of the things for, for people who, uh, some of you have alluded to this already about Christmas. If you're the type of person who celebrates Christmas, you recognize Christmas as, as a holiday for yourself or any any meaningful holiday, I guess, you know, whatever your religion is, uh, or if you don't have any religion, whatever meaningful holiday how about you guys? I know, I think everybody has stories of um, being away from home at Christmas because it's that time of year where you start to think about family and friends. Sam, how, well, you, you had to have had a number of them. Do you have some stories about being away from home at Christmas and what you did for them? I really like being away from home at Christmas because... Well, that's because you of, don't care about your family. You already said that. <laughs> <laughs> you don't miss them. Yeah. No, no, I'm sorry. I, I, I don't celebrate resist. Christmas, you know. You know it's, it's terrible. Um, we, we live in a shoebox by the side of the road and um, Christmas is a never particularly joyful experience in my family. So, you know. <laughs> You're allowed to start throwing things at me now, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. Anyway, but no, seriously, um, I love Christmas on the road because every every country that I'm in, that I'm celebrating Christmas in, um, things are done differently. Australia, Christmas dinner on the beach, only it's yes. cooked on the barbecue. Um, the sense of of the of the food interwoven with the smell of coconut suntan lotion, I've never forgotten that. And then going to digs, finding tinsel and snow painted on windows, but it's baking hot outside. Panama City. What a great time of year to be in Panama City. In fact, any Latin American country is fun at Christmas. Full-on pageantry. We stayed in um, the Central Hotel in the old part of the city. It was opposite the cathedral, and it was just fascinating sitting on the balcony. People watching, and the trees lit up with lights, and um, the, the, the floats and so on, um, with everybody full-on costumes, and Feliz Navidad blaring out from speakers, what felt like all over the city. <laughs> South Africa, Cape Town, the backpack hostel, spit roast in the backyard with all of the people staying in the host- in the hostel. They're in the heat, um, suntan lotion on again, but yeah, knocking back the beer and just singing ca- Christmas carols, uh, just lovely. Um, had a magic time in Buenos Aires, but I've told that story before, so I won't tell it again. But one story that jumped into my mind when I was talking with Birgit about this earlier on, um, Birgit and I met in New Zealand at a backpackers hostel where I was working to earn some on-the-road money. And what happens next is the story of our first Christmas together. So you can now cue the Christmas love story music. It's it's highly appropriate. Okay, just hold on. <laughs> <laughs> 
I'm not been looking for a girlfriend, and she certainly wasn't looking for a bloke like me, um, some sort of travelling bum. But we hit it off, and over the next months, while she carried on her six-month bicycle trip through New Zealand, and I'd headed up into Australia, and then into Southeast Asia, we'd kept in touch. And I asked if she'd like to join me in Nepal and India as a pillion for a while. And we would get on really, really well together. But with the small amount of time we'd actually physically spent together, and of course our letters, what would we actually be like travelling together? So she managed to get three months off work, um, and two and a half months later, we'd made it across India, uh, Nepal, through northern India, and down into Rajasthan in western India. Now, this is mostly a desert area. It's quite beautiful, but really tough to live in. Um, and at one time, of course, this area was not so dry, and its history is quite phenomenal. The architecture and the, the costumes that people wear and so on, just full-on vibrant energy. Fantastic. Now, for a time, um, this area of um, India, and at the sort of time that we in the UK were still living in mud huts, they had paved streets with underground sewerage systems. And that, to me, is part of the joy of travelling. It's finding out these things. But I am sidetracking. Now, Birgit and I were travelling with an English guy called Mark. Um, and there was this was a real house on fire set up. And we pulled into a fairly large town called Bikana towards the end of the day, and Mark was greeted by shouts of recognition as we were going down through the streets. Now, Mark had met David and Amy Woodburn back in Pakistan, and here they were. They were traveling with their seven-year-old daughter around the world, and they had an R80GS and sidecar. Just an, a fascinating couple, by the way, an incredible story. I hope they write a book on the sidetrack. Yeah, and I think they are, but we, we had them on the show, so um, I'll, I'll try and find that episode, right. and, and I'll put the link in the show. It's a great story. Yeah, fantastic. They are such amazing people. So yeah, do do click on that link if you're listening. Um, and yeah, have a listen to their story because it is phenomenal. Anyway, we pulled into their um, hotel courtyard. And just as we did that, I realized that I picked up a nail. This was my sixth puncture out of the eight-year trip. So perfect timing. Now, Mark had some issues with his bike too. So we decided we were going to stay for a few days. And Christmas began with working on the bikes and with wonderful food from Amy. And she's an absolutely fantastic cook. But the reason for telling this story was that Christmas was made really special for us by the locals. Now, Birgit and I set off into the markets to try and find food to share and little gifts to give and things like that. Now, bear in mind that this area um, is mostly Muslim and Hindu. Everywhere we went, the locals um, kept on stopping what they were doing and calling out Happy Christmas to us. And when we bought something, they said things to us like, Christmas blessings upon you, and we hope your day of celebrating Christ is quite wonderful, and joy to you, and things like that. And this was just so unexpected, and they really, really helped to make this time of joy for us. And I'm sitting here with a big grin on my face. And the only tinsel we saw was that in the windows of trucks and the buses, but that was the year-round anyway. The smells, the Christmas smells, were dust, curry, and heat perfect memory. What a great place to spend Christmas. Wow. Love them on the road. That's pretty neat. That's pretty That's neat. Fantastic. Anyone else? Yeah. Sure. I, just one that came to mind for me was um, spending Christmas south of the equator. And obviously, you know, growing up in the Northern Hemisphere, which, you know, is usually Christmassy or at Christmas time, it's usually white. We're buried in snow in South Dakota. And so, 
for me, Christmas was always white Christmas, winter, sometimes actually probably more often brown Christmases because we didn't have snow, but there was nothing green outside. Um, So spending my first Christmas south of the equator was such an experience. I spent one um, in a tropical location and near a beach, and that was fantastic. I spent another one actually with a group of motorcycle friends and overland travelers in Mendoza, Argentina. And Mendoza is famous for its location, which is situated on the eastern slopes of the Andes Mountains. And it's a world-renowned wine region, particularly known for its Malbecs. Uh, So myself and a group of three friends spent a few days leading into Christmas in flip-flops and camp chairs in a campground (laughs) just outside of Mendoza with heaps of beer and every flavor and, and kind of Malbec that we could get our hands on in front of a Korea, which is a big stone, um, sort of a grill. There's a metal grate for cooking meat. And and really that's tradition for all summer long in Argentina is cooking so many kinds of meat and having alcohol and that. And there's really nothing else that makes part of your Christmas meal. Um, But we spent a few days just, you know, sharing stories and sharing experiences with each other. Um, And one day during kind of the few days leading up to Christmas, we took a wine tour from the city out to a bunch of the different uh, wineries. And so we did samplings and had lunch one day and then came back to the campground. And I remember just this memory of wearing flip-flops and not needing a jacket. And it it was such a different kind of holiday for me than what I was used to at home in North America with winter that it was it was really memorable. And in fact, I didn't find myself homesick at all. Um, just really such a fun experience. And I, I enjoy learning what the locals do in their part of the world. And, you know, whether it's parades or special music or decorations, tons of luminarias um, around the city, all of those things were really special and so unique that that sort of Christmas experience really was was very special because of it. That's what's running through my mind as you were telling your story. I was wondering, did you get homesick? So so much going on, so different for you that there's no homesickness, no chance for it. No, not at all. And last month we talked about um, spending Christmas in Ushuaia. And uh, that was a special, very, very special Christmas. When we had um, the big barbecue dinner or the asado, as you would call it there. And, um, yes, Michelle, we drank plenty of South American wine to wash down the very special meat. And um, the next day, because Europeans celebrate Christmas on Christmas Eve, so the next day we went for a ride to the end of the the world and lay in the sun and and slept off Christmas dinner and Christmas Malbecs. But um, Christmas away from home can be incredibly special. We were in Cape Town one year and we met up with this Aussie guy and he said, let's go to the Cape of Good Hope tomorrow. It's Christmas Day. There'll be no one there. I think two-thirds of the population of Cape Town were (laughs) at the Cape of Good Hope, all thinking this is a good way to spend Christmas Day. There'll be nobody there. We got stuck in the most horrendous traffic jam. But luckily they let the bikes go all the way through and we got a park really close to um, to the visitors' area and, and ended up having a very, very great day and got some wonderful photos taken of all of us down by the, the sign. And then we went to the Victoria and Albert um, Pier and, and drank cocktails in the sun. So that was pretty special. And when you're surrounded by people who 
who all think it's a good place to go to get away from crowds, it's um, really hard to be lonely. Yeah, sure. The, the Christmas we had down at uh, Ushuaia is one that will always stick in my memory for several reasons. It was meeting our friends Bert and Heidi who, when we said we were travelling through South America, decided they would ride across Russia, uh, ship their bikes to South America and then ride down to Ushuaia to meet us for Christmas. So so when we first saw them uh, on the foreshore at Ushuaia, there was lots of hugs and kisses and tears and all the rest of it. And then in the campground that night where um, a lot of uh, travellers meet, and not just motorcycle travellers, anyone who's overlanding tends to be there for Christmas. Uh, it was so special to be able to share that. We we um, took one of the panniers off the bike and filled that up with ice um, and beer and, and um, we had the asado going and the beer cans then became um, decorations on a tree at the back to make a sort of Christmas tree. Um, so by the end of the night, there was a lot of empty beer cans on that Christmas tree. Um, and then the, the owner of the place decided he would put on um, mulled wine for everybody, that was New Year's Eve, but you know, same same thing. But you know, um, mulled wine, all that sort of stuff, and the crazy Aussies from Tasmania—they're really a different bunch down there. One of them tried to climb the telegraph pole. He might have been a little bit over refreshed, and the next morning we found him asleep under a table. From memory, if memory serves me correctly. <laughs> but, I love that uh, term. We also had yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the other one was in India. We we, we stayed um, in this little, um, really rundown little hotel on the opposite side of the river to the big hotels in Goa. And um, oh, Sam, it is uh, so yeah. different to your Christmas in India. <laughs> but they were Christians, and they invited us to this. Oh God! It ended up sorry. It ended up being like a prayer meeting, which was all a little bit scary. And then a man arrived dressed as Santa, but with a black face mask, and that was really scary. Scary Santa. It's kind of like you know how kids are frightened of clowns. I had trauma about Santa for about six months after that. No, I'm sure it was it was obviously a lovely celebration for them, but it was so different to what we have in Australia, and so different to what I expected. It was, um, well, it was Christmas and it was different. But I just can't say it any other but, way. But we had, um, there was a, an English couple staying in the same place and you sort of gravitate together and and um, he had gone, he was there to buy cricket bats for his cricket team trying to teach the English how to play cricket uh, properly. It's a little difficult, Sam, but anyway, he was trying his best. Um, and um, he'd gone out and bought a heap of fireworks and because the big hotels on the other side of the river in Goa, they put on this huge fireworks display. So we decided that we would compete with them, wouldn't we? So we had all the kids from the local town there lighting all these fireworks on the opposite side of the river, and it was just fantastic. Occupational health and safety, non-existent. <laughs> <laughs> so, Shirley, I'm, I'm curious, between Ushuaia and India, is was there a difference there with the missing home, any homesickness, any any feeling of not wanting to, to be there for Christmas? No, no, none at all. None at all. It's, it's, a, it's a weird thing, the time when you expect to be homesick most. 
because you're surrounded by other people and other travellers who are also away from home or locals who want to share their Christmas with you, um, it's really hard to to feel homesick. It's oh, it's that, a weird thing, really. But that was the time when um, we decided to ring the kids at home and, and oh, I presume it's the same now, to make an international phone call, you had to go to a particular shop. In India. In India, where they, you're in a booth and above um, where you are making your phone call is a digital readout of the rupee you're, you're, you're clocking up as you're making this phone. <laughs> <laughs> and um, we had spent that long in there that we'd gathered a crowd watching the digital readout spin as we're talking to the kids. <laughs> these, <laughs> the, I don't think these people had ever seen a phone call cost so much <laughs> and word got around the town we were in to come and, come and look, see at what's it, happening it, down it at the phone. There 30 or 40 booth. people outside this, <laughs> this telephone booth. They're just talking <laughs> and spending a fortune. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, it was cheap for us, but clearly on local standards, we were spending way too much money on this phone call. <laughs> Grant? Well, um, the comment about Christmas dinner at the beach. Oh, yes. Our first year in Australia, that was, we had to do that. And that was just, it, it was hard to describe. It, it was surreal at the same time as being, oh, this is so much nicer than having to deal with snow and rain <laughs> in Vancouver. Ah, oh, this is lovely and it's warm and we brought our meal down to the beach and we're sitting there relaxing and there were, there were other people doing the same thing, clearly having Christmas dinner. And and that was just, oh yeah, this this is cool. And we didn't feel, again, lonely. We didn't miss home. We were really glad we were where we were. It was a wonderful feeling. So I think that's, like it has been said, you're with other people usually and there's so much going on and you're so engrossed in what you're doing that you don't have time to be lonely or to miss home or whatever. You're just so in the moment that it's a good thing. Um, the other one, of course, was Ushuaia when we were there in 97. That was very special, as Brian and Shirley have always talked about, so I won't say much, but it was amazing. I mean, there were, we had Belgians, Germans, Italians, Canadians. We had an American, Icelandic, and there was a bunch of backpackers. And I always remember that there were several of the uh, travelers on motorcycles were single guys, and they were trying to pick up the backpacker girls too. That was that was quite a show to watch. I mean, they were really trying hard. That's a surprise. <laughs> yeah, no, it's not. <laughs> and, uh, of course, our special Christmas present to ourselves, it was on Christmas Day that uh, we managed to finally book a boat to Antarctica. So that was that was really special. Yeah. yeah. And we, we that's probably one of the highlights of our lives was this trip to Antarctica. It's such a special place, and it was so amazing that, We'll always remember that. Yeah, you can't miss it. You know, wrapped in these stories of, of Christmas away from home is sort of, um, the, I guess, the solution for dealing with emotions on the trip. It's all about engagement, isn't it? I mean, you know, yes. everyone's talking about these stories of engagement while away from home and and no chance to worry about it. I mean, even Shirley, who I think is probably <laughs> the most sensitive to homesickness, and I'm not making funny of Shirley, but I, I, I just think that it's it's pretty neat to think that this engagement and getting together with other people and having fun um, is, is sort of a cure. Yeah. And Chris, on, I remember on, at Ushuaia on um, the next, the day after Christmas, Boxing Day, 
we had managed to get ourselves a little B&B, and it even came with a kitchenette. So we invited several of the people from the campground over to join us. And all we had to serve was hamburgers. But Susan makes a hamburger to die for. And I still received every year from one of the guys a picture of the hamburger. Says, this, <laughs> that was the most amazing food <laughs> on his trip. <laughs> I was just blown away by it. And uh, Max, who's an Italian, he was a vegetarian, but we invited him, you know, come on, we'll, we'll find something for you. And he took one look at the hamburger and says, I'll have one of those. <laughs> <laughs> now, is Susan still making these hamburgers? Oh, yeah. Okay, that's that's good to keep in yeah, mind. They're, they're, they're so big that you really can't get it into your mouth without making a tremendous mess. Mm, but they're well. so good. <laughs> yeah, as you're saying that, and I was listening to Michelle talk about the asados, a vegetarian would really struggle for something to oh. eat in, in South America. Oh, yeah. Wow. In Argentina in particular. But yes. we yeah. seemed quite happy with all of the meat. I feel badly for how many animals. This is so terrible. But that we must have eaten just over... You know, <laughs> From this campground with, you know, a half a dozen yeah. travelers and how much wine we drank and how much Kilmes beer. Yeah, it was it was perfect. It was heaven. Michelle, are you a vegetarian? Uh, I am not. Oh, but, okay. I thought uh, you were. Yeah. Uh, I have leanings in that direction. I, I, I really would like to be, but mm. no. I grew up in beef country, so I still eat meat. Yeah. And Kilmes beer. Yeah. Kilmer's beer show. Yeah, it's not bad. I'd forgotten about that, Michelle. Oh, no, never me. I, I, I love to go back. <laughs> well, when you get home and try and find these exotic beers, when we were in Russia, uh, Brian took a, um, a liking to um, Baltica 7. They rate their beers as to how much alcohol's in them, and he thought the 7 was pretty good. I scoured Australia to get it, and you cannot buy it here for love nor money. You probably can't buy King's beer here either. So, But you can buy Fosters everywhere in the world, and people don't understand that in Australia we don't, we drink, don't drink Fosters. That's why you can get it anywhere in the world. <laughs> it's how, all for export. How high do the numbers go, Correct. Shirley? You said that he likes seven. Uh, Thirteen. No, oh, okay. 13 was the highest, and we was, we stayed oh, in this right. tiny little town in, um, I don't know, somewhere in the stands, and Brian was doing some work on the bike, and, and he was working with some uh, another foreigner who was working on his four-wheel drive. So I went to the shop and bought back some Baltica 13, and they had one can. The cans are fairly large, but not, you know, not a litre or anything. They had one can each, and they were as silly as wheels. What you've <laughs> got to understand, that, that beer is as strong as a glass of wine. <laughs> Yeah, that's true. The Russians love their beer and they love their vodka. Very much so. It seems to me like you all love uh, Christmas in Australia with our hot weather and all the rest of it. As long as you can keep the sand out of your lunch. Well, Shirley and Brian, have you guys had a cold Christmas before? Have you spent Christmas in a climate where you have snow? Uh, Uh, I have in a in a previous life, but um, yeah, I I haven't. I haven't. And uh, as someone said, I'm dreaming of a white Christmas one day. The stupid thing thing is, Jim, we have Christmas and it's likely to be anywhere from high 20s to high 30s in weather. And, uh, well, still everyone wants the roast, so you've still got the oven going for hour upon hour (laughs) and all the baked veggies. You don't decorate your home with a fake snow on the windows. 
No, no, no. Lights and things like that. But, you know, it, because my, my boys are both in the hospitality industry, we've had our, our little Christmas lunch already and um, as we sometimes do, we'll have a waifs and strays Christmas, which means anyone who's at a loose end in our close proximity can drop by, um, share something on the barbecue, have a swim in the pool, lands around in the sunshine, whatever. Mm. And we've got trade wars with China at the moment, and there is a blessing to that. Which crayfish is? is very crayfish, crayfish is very cheap this Christmas because mm. they can't export it to China. So while the Chinese are missing out on our crayfish, Yabu sucks, we get it cheap. <laughs> <laughs> wow. The last time we had cheap fish was when the Japanese emperor died, but that's another story. <laughs> <laughs> is that a good story? Well, no, not for the Japanese emperor. Uh, right. <laughs> but because Japan loves their emperor so much, the whole country was in virtual mourning, so there was not much crayfish sold in Japan that year, so it was very cheap in Australia. Wow. Sam, did you have some Christmas trivia for us? I do, but, I mean, it starts off with, with me just loving Christmas. I'm, I really, really like it. I like Christmas carols and I like Christmas songs and I don't care if that makes me a bit sad because I just think most of them are cheerful and they're fun or they're thoughtful and Christmas should be that way. And my favourite carols, Silent Night, 12 Days of Christmas, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, Oh, holy night, go tell it to the mountain and God rest you merry gentlemen. And I love going to church at Christmas because it's the only place that I can put my heart and soul into singing and nobody else notices how bad I am at it. <laughs> go tell it to now, the mountain, take, you said, was one of those? Yeah. I'm not familiar with that one. How does that go? Oh, have a look at it. Have a look at it. I'm not going to sing that one. I will sing something in a minute. Okay. Just keep your hand hovering over the delete button. <laughs> it's probably a sound idea. I'm going to leave Favorite it for the Christmas. listener. To, uh, I'll warn them. You, you you have to warn them <laughs> before you get to it. Favourite Christmas songs. Bing Crosby, White Christmas, and I love that. And Birgit hates me singing it, but I really like singing it. Nat King Cole, the Christmas song. Um, Chuck Berry, Run, Rudolph, Run. The Waitresses, Christmas Wrapping. Wham! Last Christmas and Chris Rea driving home for Christmas. And there was one that I, di I didn't know that I came across um, a few weeks back and it's the Trans-Siberian Orchestra with Christmas Eve, Sarajevo 1224. Mm. And it's a really interesting bit of Christmas music. So if you've not come across that, then have a hunt. But the trivia, Christmas, uh, Birgit and I were in a shop um, last week, small clothing shop, and the music was, I thought, Judy Garland singing, Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas. And while Birgit was trying things on and I was just standing waiting, I started to listen to the lyrics, and there were lyrics that I had not heard before, and I thought, this is really bizarre. Later on, when we got home, I had to have a look it up online, and I discovered that Judy Garland refused to sing this version, and so now we actually have a more cheerful version. Cue Sam singing. Are you ready for this? Okay, here we go. This is the, the non-Judy version. It's going to be bad, so be careful. Have yourself a merry little Christmas. It may be your last. Next year we may all be living in the past. 
So have yourself a merry little Christmas. And so it goes on. And I'm just thinking, what? How on earth can you have words like that for a Christmas carol? But I mean, the, the traditional version that we that we normally know, um, yeah, far more appropriate, aren't they? And I suppose in a way, those ones are kind of appropriate for the times. Well, I think but, it's a touch of reality, isn't it? That song. I mean, you know, that, that makes perfect mm. sense. By the way, my dog started to howl. I had to mute there. <laughs> <laughs> Sam, I thought it was fantastic, and thank you. Very well done. Oh, right, I'll, I'll sing another one then. Right, oh, here goes. Well, we're, we're tight for time, Sam. I'd like to let you Listen, go on, but... but I'm, I, I've got a couple of more things that I want to say, and I am. I have to say that I am helped by a very fine single malt that I'm drinking at the moment. It's Welsh, and it's called Penderin. So anybody who's got access to this should try it. It's very tasty, Penderin. Anyway, I would like to wish... Everybody, um, happy Christmas, wherever you are. And I hope that you have a fine time with your family and friends, if you've managed together. And if you can't be, note the change of wording here, riding home for Christmas, I hope that you have some great sessions on Zoom and the like, and that you'll use social media for just that. As for the coming year, I feel really optimistic. I think that we've all learned a lot over the last two years, us, the medics, the scientists, the cynics, and so on. And I think we're all in the process of living with the restrictions in life and certainly travel, but we will get there again. And I want to wish us all a very happy new year. And finally, my last thought, um, and this is I'm raising the glass as I'm talking. I want to wish everybody who's a, a Raw listener um, Merry Christmas and thank you very much for joining us on Raw for the fantastic questions and the messages. When I'm sitting here with um, the rest of the guys and we're recording this, I just feel that we're being listened to by kindred spirits and this is just such a great way to be in touch. So cheers. Merry Christmas to everybody. Absolutely. Cheers. 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 I'll add mine to that as Christmas, well. Sam. What else can we say? That's fantastic. Thank you, mate. I agree. It is the the last um, episode of of 2021, you know, and pretty soon we'll be into a a brand new year. I love your optimism, Sam, and and I I tend to feel a little of that myself. I don't think you can, I don't think you can feel any other way, you know, with everything we've all been dealing with. I think we have to be optimistic. We've got to, you know, sort of look uh, into the future with um, a bit of a smile on our face and expect good things. And maybe it'll be just like I'd said earlier, that those things that we worry about, they never come to fruition and we end up um, not having to deal with them anyway. So hopefully that means that, um, yeah, next year will be a good year and we'll, we'll all be able to get out and do things. Does, does anyone else have anything they want to say for our, our last episode of 2021? Yes, thank you to the listeners. Yeah, thank you to the listeners for taking the time out of their busy day to listen to the lot of us babbling on and Hopefully we're saying something intelligent occasionally. And I hope everybody learned something and maybe gets inspired to get out and do a little traveling, whether it's to the next mountain range while we're under uh, COVID restrictions of some kind or other, or it's to another country or another continent. It's all good and it all makes life worth living. Get out there and go. I'm always reminded of um, Mark Twain's famous quote, which we've all heard, but I think it doesn't hurt to remind ourselves of it. Travel is fatal to prejudice, bigotry, and narrow-mindedness. Mm-hmm. Many of our people need it sorely on these accounts. Broad, wholesome, charitable views of men and things cannot be acquired by vegetating in one little corner of the earth all one's lifetime. Get out and go. Very nice. Here, here. Yes, absolutely. So, Merry Christmas, everybody. Yeah. Yes, Merry, Merry Christmas. Christmas. Merry, Merry Christmas and Happy Christmas. New Year. Hands looking at 2022. 
Yes. Which has got to be better than the last couple of years. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. It will be. We're at the bottom looking up. (laughs) Yep. I have a plaque that sits on my desk that uh, is a plaque that I read not every day. I used to. But um, more so than a Christmas thought, maybe it's something about going into the new year. And so I just wanted to take a moment, maybe share that. Um, it's, a, it's a quote from Mac Anderson. And again, it, it's written for looking at a new day. As you get up and you start your day, it's intended for that. But I think it's appropriate for looking at it in a thought-provoking way for a new year that's on the horizon and as we approach it. And it goes a little something like this. So this is the beginning of a new day. You have been been given this day to use as you will. You can waste it or use it for good. What you do is important today because you are exchanging a day of your life for it. When tomorrow comes, this day will be gone forever. And in its place will be something that you have left behind. Let it be something good. Wow. I like that. Nice. That's, That's really yes. cool. yeah. very yeah, nice. Thank you. I think it's very apropos for looking at a new year. So, you know, we we all have the year ahead of us to make into what we want, whether that's something, you know, a new adventure or just um, experiencing life even at home and enjoying your loved ones or finding a way to make a difference or spread positivity or um, do the work that it takes to make all those things a reality. But I wish everyone a very, very happy holiday season and uh, a very happy new year. We'll see you next year. Cheers. Yep. Do it. And some of us will be riding a brand new motorcycle, right, Brian? (laughs) (laughs) You never know what Santa might have under the tree for him. Oh, oh, we heard that. gloves. I can see it now. gloves. (laughs) (laughs) And on a a lighthearted note, for those listeners in Cape Town, get up early if you're going to go to the Cape of Good Hope because everyone else thinks it's a good place to go on Christmas Day as well. (laughs) (laughs) So true. (laughs) Can I make a comment? This this follows on from um, something that Brian said just now. And, and normally we do plugs, and I'm going to um, jump straight in with this. I hope that's all right, Jim. Because um, it, it does follow on from, from what Brian and Shirley do. Um, I want to do a, a bit of a shout out to everyone who's planning to go the extra mile for people who are battling or who, who are less well off than they are this Christmas. I think, you know, amidst all of our own worries and the retail hype, it's so easy to forget those that are struggling for whatever reason that might be. And where actually helping each other is so right, but it's in keeping with the wonderful side of Christmas. So, um, yeah, cheers to everybody who's already planning to do something for other people. Um, strangers. And thumbs up to everyone who's about to make a plan. Um, yeah, um, go for it. Cheers. That's Christmas spirit. Love it. Well, um, to to jump into plugs, our, our last plugs for the year. Is that your plug, Sam? It is. Okay. Okay. So, um, Michelle, what do you have for a plug? Well, I have kind of a unique one. I'm looking again, obviously I'm I'm looking through the holidays already and into the new year, which I'm super excited about the holidays and I don't want to rush by them. Don't get me wrong, but I'm going to um, visit uh, some friends and stay with some friends over the holidays in North Carolina. And I have the opportunity, I'm so excited to go visit a, at least in the United States, a somewhat famous motorcycle museum, Wheels Through Time in Maggie Valley. 
Um, and I just want to say just kind of a reminder to anyone out there who's, you know, traveling or even at home, if there's a motorcycle museum that you have the opportunity to visit, I'm just going to put that on your radar for somewhere maybe in 2022 because I've been to a few and I am so sorry that I can't remember the name of the one that I went to in the UK on the South Coast. It was a very famous one, a man's name. Um but anyway, a fantastic museum. I went to one in Iceland one time, and there are a number of them out there. So just a way of, of you know, enjoying the history of motorcycles and some famous riders and, and uh, seeing some interesting parts of, of that. So I'm looking forward to going to Maggie Valley and Wheels Through Time. Very nice. And you're going to have a green Christmas then. Yeah, I am. Yeah. Uh, Instead of a brown one. That's a treat. That's right. (laughs) Can you post some pictures, please, Michelle? Because um, that's a a museum that I've been meaning to go to for ages and I still haven't managed to get to. I would love to see what it's like. Me too. And I rode Deals Gap. I did the Tale of the Dragon and all of that and had no idea that the museum was there and completely Mm -hmm. missed it. So I've been looking forward to it for years and I'll happily share photos. Nice one. Shirley, what do you have for plug? Um, look, Jim, this will come as a complete surprise. Um, I don't actually have a plug. <laughs> but this is your last chance of 2021, Shirley. You, you sure you don't want to think oh, about this and come can back? I make mine, can, Jim, can I make mine a thank you? Everyone's been thanking the listeners um, for listening. I'd just like to thank the WAGs for connecting as well. Some of the messages that we get (laughs) on Instagram and Facebook from raw listeners, as I said before, all the cracks about the tyre pliers, but also stuff about things they enjoy. And um, someone came onto our Facebook page and said, now I know what you look like, which I kind of don't know quite what he meant by that. But um, (laughs) hopefully he he wasn't overly shocked. Um, so just a, a, cheer, a really huge thank you to everyone and you guys for making getting up early once a month so worth it. We really do love the companionship we have from you. And I know we've met, um, well, all of you except you, Jim. Oh, and Sam. But we all feel like we're just friends forever, which is the strangest thing. Yeah. So have a nice Christmas. I- and next year I'll try and be a good girl and have a plug every month. <laughs> oh, that's a, that's a great New Year's resolution. That's fantastic. Uh, I hold you to that. Cheers, Shirley. I just said try. I didn't say I was going to. She's bitten off way more than she can chew. Very wise. <laughs> it's one of those New Year's resolution things, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. There's something else to break. <laughs> what have you got, Brian? Um, as you know, I did sit on that motorcycle and um, it was – it was pretty nice, I've got to say. And my old girl, the old bike, I mean, has done three hundred and thirty thousand. It's still going okay, but um, and so is this old girl, by the way. <laughs> a shout out! A shout out to Andreas at BMW. Maybe I might get a bit of a discount. You never know. <laughs> so shallow. <laughs> you never know. <laughs> Grant, what do you have? Well, what I've got is give your favorite other person or yourself a Vimeo.com slash Horizons Unlimited ticket to see the achievable dream. You can't travel right now or you're not traveling. Well, get planning, get prepared, figure it all out. The achievable dream will still help you out, figure out what's going on, what you should do. And 
Start planning also, of course, for Horizons Unlimited events, horizonsunlimited.com slash events. There's a number of events that are planned, not necessarily all going to make it. We all know in these days with COVID that it may or may not happen, but we are absolutely planning on a bunch of events. So check out the schedule and see what's happening. And we'll hope to see you at one or two of those next year. Well, it's great to hear that you're um, going ahead and planning them for next year. And hopefully, yeah, there'll be uh, more and more happening once we uh, get this all under control. Fingers crossed. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I just want to say thank you to you guys. This is episode, I think I already told you, this is episode 71. And it's the end of another year. I mean, we're at the end of 2021. And it's like Shirley said, you know, Shirley and Brian getting up early in the morning every month for, I mean, we've been doing this for years now and, and we're, we're just, it's just so much fun to sit down and, and talk with you all. Michelle, I, I know you're fairly new, but even you've been here for a long time now. I mean, do you know how long you, you've been on? I, I can't remember now. It's a year. It's I think I year. started in January. So yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah, I'm super so, excited yeah. about that. That's really, really cool. cool. So, I mean, thank, this is great. And, and thank you all for that. Oh, yeah. I, I want to thank everyone. I mean, really, I mean, it's been great. And I, I know we, I don't think any of us thought it was going, we were going to be doing this this far down the road, but um, it's something I look forward to doing every month. And I have a lot of fun with this. And of course I learned tons from all of you. So thank you all very much. We're delighted to be here. Jim. You, Jim. We appreciate all the work you do to make it happen yeah. too. Yes, definitely. Editing out our fluffs and bumps. <laughs> <laughs> I made a lot of friends um, through this show, and and that's yeah. that's special. Yeah, yeah it is. Sure. And, uh, and and of course, the listener, thank you very much for for listening to us for this many years. I mean, I, I, you know, I, I'm I'm really blown away how this thing has worked out. So, and it's uh, it's just so much fun to do. So, great thing to be doing. And I guess with that, that's it. We're wrapping up 2021 and, and moving into another year. Thank you very much, everyone. Thank, thank you. you. And Happy New Year, everybody. Yes, thank you. Yeah, happy thanks. holidays. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. Happy holidays. All that sort of stuff. Cheers. 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 I can sing, I can sing us out now if you like. Yeah, yeah, you do that. Go ahead, Sam. Hi. Yes, you are. There goes. I'm dreaming of a white Christmas. Just like the ones I used to know Where the tree talks to listen And shit listen Well, that wraps things up for this month's ARR Raw. And thank you to my co-host, Sam Manicom, starting with Sam Manicom. He lives in the UK. He's got four books and audiobooks that follow his eight-year motorcycle journey around the world. His website, sam-manicom.com. Shirley Hardy Ricks and Brian Ricks are from Australia. They also publish their own books on motorcycle travel. You can buy them wherever you get eBooks at their website, aussiesoverland.com.au. Michelle Lampfair is a moto traveler that also has a couple of great moto travel books, The Butterfly Route and Tips for Traveling Overland in Latin America. Both of those titles available on Amazon. As well, she has a motel for us motorcyclists and anyone else called the Chalet Motel. You can find out more about that at chaletmotelcuster.com. And of course, Grant Johnson is from Horizons Unlimited, which is the hub, literally, for our adventure motorcycling community. Horizons Unlimited has tons of up-to-date travel information, as well as a huge forum of dedicated travelers that connect you with other travelers. They also put on the hub meets around the world. You can see a worldwide list of hub meets at their website, horizonsunlimited.com. 
Special thanks to our producer, Elizabeth Martin. My name is Jim Martin. Thank you for listening. Join us again next time. Oh, and don't forget, if you want to get uh, your question or a topic suggestion in here, drop by our website. You can also look at the show notes. I have some more information in here. You can make comments on the show notes. AdventureRiderRadio.com. 